Matthew chapter 26, I want to begin reading in, in, in verse 53. If, you, if you're physically able, I would invite you, if you would, to stand as we read the Word of God together. This is in the garden um, as Jesus has been praying before his crucifixion. The mob has come to arrest him. And uh, verse uh, 53, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray. If you're paying attention to what's happening in our world around us, you might be tempted to be very dismayed right now. We've said very often that it seems as though uh, those who are completely secular, those who have rejected uh, any sense of the gospel and certainly any idea of faith seem to be on the rise, and those who, who uh, testify to the gospel seem to be in retreat. There is a principle in Scripture where oftentimes I, you see where God gives us to what we think we want until we become sick of it that we might return to him. And I have often wondered if that's not what the Lord is doing with us uh, in these days. But every now and then there is a bit of a glimmer of hope. I read an article this week of a very well-known and a very secular and a very crass comedian who has been up until this point very outspoken politically. And, uh, and, and on all the things, all the political sides that, that you or I probably would not agree with, uh, she made the news because she was saying she was going to disengage from politics and she was kind of tired of being outraged all the time and those sort of things which did not catch my attention. What caught my attention was this. Toward the very end of the article, she was talking about her dismay of cancel culture. And we can appreciate that, you know, if you lose your livelihood or those sort of things, that could be bad. But what really caught my attention was she said this. She said, what upsets me the most is there's no way back. There's, if you've done something 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and somebody calls you on it today, and, and they call for you to lose your job or, or to be shamed, there's, there's no way to ever get over that, to ever find forgiveness from that. You're just forever condemned. And dear friends, she's not wrong in the context of the secular world. But here's the word I want you to hear today. The hope of the gospel is this, that the most vile, wicked sinner, even if everything you have ever done is totally exposed and known by all, the most vilest, wicked, shameful sinner can find hope, redemption, and righteousness in Jesus. 
that is the hope of the cross. This morning, we, we catch the story, we pick up the story in the garden just prior to all the, the trials that will happen throughout the night and the next day. And what has just happened when we read this passage was that the, the high priest had sent um, what, what Matthew describes as a multitude. In fact, he says it was a, a great multitude, and they had swords and clubs. They came ready for a brawl, and they came to arrest Jesus. Now, he had been with his disciples in the garden praying most of the the evening. That had followed after the, the supper that he'd had with them. We often refer to it as the Last Supper, where he gave new meaning to the, the Passover meal and the bread and the wine and, and, uh, and what we celebrate when we celebrate today, the, the Lord's Supper. You may be familiar with this story. It may be new to you. Either way, there's a, there's a possibility here that as you read through it, you might miss some, some of the details that I think are rather important. Matthew makes very clear that this is a large group. This isn't a small crowd. This is a large group that's come to arrest Jesus. In fact, um, I think on both sides, the disciples and on the crowd that comes to arrest Jesus, I think both of them are sort of ready for a fight. Um, Peter, when he is confronted, pulls out his sword and strikes the, the servant of the high priest. Um, Luke tells us that his ear was actually cut off and Jesus healed Ear. And immediately, instead of um, allowing that to continue, Jesus rebukes them all and says, put up your swords, holster your weapons. Things are going to go differently than what you thought. Jesus would go with those who came to arrest him. He would not resist them. He surrenders himself to them. And I want us to see today that he does so willingly. He doesn't go with them because they have the swords and the clubs. He doesn't go with them because they have overwhelming numbers. Jesus intentionally goes with them because he is fulfilling the mission of, of, of being the suffering servant, obedient to the will of God for the redemption of sinners like you and me. And as we consider this short interchange between Jesus and this mob, I want us to consider these three these three things. Number one, he is, a, he is a, um, a servant in his suffering. Secondly, he is a servant in his obedience, and he is a servant for our redemption. Let's begin with servant in suffering. If you'll look back with me again in the passage in verse 53, it says, Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father... And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. There's something going on here that I don't think either the disciples or even the crowd that has come to arrest him quite appreciate. Now, the fact that they come with such large numbers and the fact that they come with all of the, the weapons to fight and to seize. In fact, Jesus references this. You came to, to, to catch me like a robber. The, the fact that they come like that, I think, indicates that they think they're in for a fight. They're, they're in for a, um, a conflict here. But, but Jesus doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't push back on them at all. And what we see in him is that he is withholding his power. He says to them, do you not understand that if I were to ask my father that I could call legions of angels to come to my rescue. 
You see, the religious leaders had been scheming to kill Jesus for a while. Now, at this point, they are ready to play their hand and arrest Jesus. And so they send Judas uh, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, and they're, they're ready for the fight. They come with a show of power to overwhelm Jesus and his disciples. Peter seems ready for the fight and pulling out his sword and slashing at the high priest's servant. But Jesus immediately changes the direction of how these events will unfold. He commands his disciples to stop fighting and put away their swords. Luke records that he actually healed the high priest's servant's ear. And verse 53 makes clear that what was happening was not happening according to the power of man. That's the key here. Jesus says that if he so chose, he could have more than 12 legions of angels at his command. Now, legion equals about 50,000 soldiers. But don't get bogged down into the numbers here. His point is not how many he can call. His point here is that, that he is, has all the power, all the authority, all the dominion over everything, both in heaven and on earth. And if he so chose, he could bring every angel to his disposal to bring his defense. Jesus is declaring that by his command, he has authority over all heaven and all over earth. Every angel, all of creation. Think with me for just a moment. This is Jesus who commanded the winds and the waves to be still. Could he not call up a great wind to blow away the multitude? And the answer is yes. This is Jesus who told the sea to quit to be still. Could he not call up a great um, wave to crash over, its, uh, over the, the banks of the ocean and come swallow up the multitude. Yes, we've seen in Scripture where God literally opened up the ground and swallowed those who were opposing him and all sorts of things. Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come and all of those things are at his disposal. For that matter, these men who come to arrest him, Jesus by his command could command their hearts to stop and their breath to cease and they would all die. He could do all of this and more, but at this moment, none of this happens, not because he is powerless, but because he chose to withhold his power. Pay attention here. The God of eternity withheld his power to be a suffering servant for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus has a more important thing to do here than fight the mob. And so he withholds his power. And you, you see here, too, he withholds his authority. In verse 56, all of Jesus' disciples fled, and the multitude that had come to arrest him seized him, and they took him away. There's a tremendous amount of humiliation in this moment. Jesus, who is eternal God, worthy of all honor, all praise, all glory, uh, the one in whom through all things were created, is now arrested, shackled, and imprisoned. He will be beaten and shamed throughout the night in the days to come. This moment seems like a low moment, but we must be clear that even in shackles and chains, listen to me, even in shackles and chains, Jesus is still King of Kings. Even in shackles and chains, he's still Lord of Lords and Prince of Peace. There is nothing about this moment where Jesus has given up who he is. He is not under the authority of these men. 
At no moment in, in this event or any that would follow has Jesus surrendered or lost any of his divine, eternal, sovereign authority. But, but, but for the sake of sinful men, that he would be the sacrifice for our sin, he willfully chooses to withhold his authority. At this moment, Jesus has not lost his sovereign authority uh, and become powerless, but has chosen to withhold his sovereign authority. The God of all of eternity withheld his authority to be a suffering servant for for the forgiveness of our sins. Everything about this moment is Jesus willingly suffering for you and for me. He's a servant in suffering. And we see here also he's a servant in obedience. Now, what had happened up to this moment, so Jesus had been in the garden and he had been praying and he had been praying rather intensely. The, I think the disciples had been trying to pray with him, but they'd been falling asleep and couldn't quite stay with him. The Bible tells us that his prayer in the garden was rather intense as he recognized, he knew what was coming and praying to the Father about it. But in that moment and in this moment, we, still, we see that Jesus was obediently, perfectly to the will of God. He had spent the evening praying intensely because he knew what was, he was about to experience. And in verse 39 of the same chapter, it says that he went a little beyond them, that is the disciples, and, and he fell on his face and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now here before this great multitude that has come to arrest him, he again acknowledges that his allegiance and obedience is to the will of God. In verse 40, 54, he says, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which says it must happen this way? In other words, he recognizes this is declared by God, and he's going to be obedient to the will of God. Jesus will obediently, perfectly obey the will of God. The prophet Isaiah tells us that it pleased the Lord some of the most striking language to me. It pleased the Lord to give his son as a sacrifice for our sin. Isaiah writes in chapter 53, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. He's talking about Jesus. Pleased to crush him, put him putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Friends, this does not mean that the Lord was pleased in the sense of enjoying this moment. This means that it was the desire and the will of God that Jesus be the guilt offering for our sin. Let's be very honest. Without Jesus being the guilt offering for our sin, then there's not a single soul in this room that could hope in forgiveness. Without Jesus being the guilt offering for our sin, we all would be condemned in our sin. It pleased God, not in a sense of happy pleasure, but it pleased God in the sense of it was his will that his son would be the guilt offering that you and I might have forgiveness from our sins. Jesus willingly submitted himself to the will of God, not just because he, out of happenstance, but he did so for our redemption, for your redemption, that you could know forgiveness in the Lord. And so he perfectly fulfills the Scripture. Twice in our passage, Jesus references the fulfillment of Scripture in verse 54 and in verse 56. 
I'm fascinated here to think about how Jesus understood that these events were not under the control of the arresting mob or their benefactors, but rather happening to fulfill Scripture. He knew all of it was to come before it was to come. For you and I, when we experience moments of crisis, something falls apart, something breaks, there's something that happens in our life that, that is tragic. Moments of crisis for us feel like things are out of control, and we react to them as such. We're trying to, 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 to react and respond and catch up with something that caught us off guard. To the disciples, I think this must have seemed like everything was falling apart. The end of this passage tells us that the disciples, who at the beginning of this confrontation were willing to take out their swords and fight. Maybe we could even say they were willing, Peter at least, was willing to die for Jesus, but, but now they're fleeing, they're running away. It must have seemed like everything was turned upside down and a crisis moment for them, the kingdom of which they thought they were participating in, Jesus the king and who they thought was going to be established possibly like a political leader, all of that stuff seemed to be gone for naught now, and they're in a crisis moment. But let's be clear. There was never a moment, there was never a second, not in all of history, not in all of eternity, and not in this moment either, that surprised our Lord Jesus. He knows all things. He sees all things. And these events don't surprise Jesus. He perfectly knows the word and the will of God. He knows then in that in this moment uh, he, that, that uh, he, he foreknew it and, and even for the foundations of the world that this moment was coming. This did not catch Jesus by surprise. These events are not unfolding according to the random happenstance. These events are um, unfolding so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And Jesus obeys the will of God that he might perfectly fulfill the scriptures and the testimony of God. Now, why does he do that? Why does he do that? Jesus does all of this to be a servant for our redemption. There's purpose here. And I want you to see really two purposes under our redemption. The first is for God's glory. That's where we always must begin. Jesus willingly went to the cross, not because he had to, not because he was made to by this mob or he was forced to by the religious leaders of the day. Jesus went to the cross for the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 1 says, In love he predestined us at, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, that is Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Friends, it is an, it's an ugly place of execution, and it's an ugly place of shame. But when Jesus went to the cross, that ugly thing became beautiful because it glorified God. The redemption of sinners through the blood of Jesus glorifies God. The demonstration of the amazing grace in the cross glorifies God. Jesus surrenders himself willingly in this moment to these men that he might bring glory to the name of God in our redemption on the cross. 
He goes for the God's glory and he goes for man's redemption. Ultimately, the focus and purpose of Jesus in this moment is the redemption of sinners. Now, I want to press this with you for just a moment. There is a tendency, if we're not careful, when we think about these events leading up to the cross, and sometimes you see this in, the, in how it is portrayed, when it's portrayed like in, in drama or, in, or, 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 or film, that all of these events are, are horrible and terrible, and Jesus is, uh, um, is at the whim and the desire and under the control of those who are treating him so poorly. But I just want to make the point here this morning that there's not a moment. There is not a moment where Jesus is out of control. Somebody say amen. There's not a moment where Jesus has surrendered his power or his authority. And every moment, whether he is in, in the hands of the religious leaders or whether he's delivered over to the Roman uh, authorities or whether he is hanging on the cross, in all of those moments, he is all God and all man. He retains unto himself all power and might and all the things that he's always had, but he willingly surrenders those things for our redemption. Peter wanted to start a war, but Jesus would not let him fight. The mob thought they needed swords and clubs, but Jesus chose to go with them freely. Jesus, who, was, who is all-powerful, surrendered himself for man's redemption. Jesus, who knew all things, willingly went toward the cross for man's redemption. Jesus, who was without sin, would take on himself the sin of the world for man's redemption. That is that men and women might be saved. That includes those who are in the mob that night. That includes the people who in just a few days would cry out for his crucifixion. Oh, and that beautifully includes you and me. I oftentimes think how, how do we talk about what happens in these moments when Jesus all God, all man, willingly chooses not to exercise his authority and his power for our redemption. Now, any illustration eventually comes up short, but the, the one that, that helps me understand this the best is when our children were little, sometimes I would wrestle with them on the floor. If you've ever had small children and been around dads and small children, you've seen this happen. So, particularly with my boys, but my daughter too, we'd get on the floor and we would wrestle. And when they were little, they'd always win, right? They would always win. And, you know, they, it would, maybe they would, would pin me to the ground and sit on top of me and proclaim that they had beaten dad. And, 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 and you understand that as we were wrestling on the floor, we, and, and, and I, I guess when they were little, I don't know this, but I guess when they were little, when it was all said and done, they thought they really had won. And I did that for their delight and their joy. But you would have understood if you were in my home watching that go down that the reality of it was that I really was not beaten by a three-year-old. I hope you would understand that. I hope if, if you were in my home and you were watching a, a big wrestling match between me and my little children, that, that you, would not have, you would have understood that the, that the strength of my three-year-old was not overpowering the strength that I had as an adult. 
But what you would have recognized was happening was that with all of my power and all of my strength, I was willingly choosing not to exercise that for the delight of my children. And what's happening in this passage is much more than a wrestling match between a dad and preschoolers. But it's similar in that Jesus, who never for a minute surrendered who he was, Jesus, who at every moment in the story was all God, who could have, if he had chosen, calling every legion, every, every angel that there ever was to his defense. He could have demanded that the sun and moon refuse to shine. He could have commanded the seas to escape their shores and come wash away everyone who opposed him. All of those things were under his sovereign command. But Jesus with you and me on his heart, willingly surrendered, willingly withheld his power and his authority that you and I might be redeemed. Dear friends, here's where we are today. There is no thing in politics that can make you right. Politics might give you some righteous anger, but it can't make you right. At this point in your life, there is nothing you can do to make up for what you have done. Whatever your story is, whether you have vile, shameful sin in your life or you've been living what you think is a fairly good life, the truth of it is the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and there is nothing at this point in your life you can do to make up for your sin. If you gave away all your money to the poor, if you served the church for the rest of your days, if you gave your life as a martyr's death, there's nothing you can do at this point to make up for the sin of your life. The testimony of it is you are condemned in your sin. That's a pretty bleak word. If it were not for Jesus, all God, all man, who came and willingly surrendered his authority and his power to be a servant for our redemption, that he might be on the cross as a guilt offering for your sin and my sin, that you and I might be redeemed before God. And that is the excellent word of Scripture, that sinners condemned and vile in their sin can be made righteous and whole and beautiful before the Lord through the blood of Jesus.